Welcome to the May 2023 full moon episode of Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope in this great turning toward life-honoring, life-sustaining ways, bringing you deep conversations with people who are rising to their own unique roles in this story. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on earth, and is finding your way to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects. I practice acupuncture and dream work. I believe in the power of conversation, and I get a lot of goodness from connecting with people around the world who are giving their hearts and minds and hands to the great turning. Today you'll hear from Joe Brewer, someone I have learned so much from, someone who's been a strong source of information, inspiration, techniques and strategies, and also the way I've found many other people I'm now so grateful to be connected with, including Charles Upton, who you heard from in episode 21. Since our conversation, I've been carrying with me a couple of things he talked about, including the primary importance of the regenerative capacity of the land and reconnecting to the larger landscape scale within my bioregion, even if I am in a city. So listen for that. And his passionate words about having children and being with children in these times. It's a long conversation we had, so I won't use your time here for a summary, but I do want to give you some more background about Joe's work before we jump in, so you can follow those threads if you like and learn more. Joe is a complexity researcher and transdisciplinary scholar who has studied cultural evolution, physics, atmospheric sciences, and cognitive linguistics, among other things. He's also a father and someone who is trying to embody the pathway to earth regeneration, which I see him doing when I know he's out there digging swales and planting trees and engaging in all the realities of cooperating in community. Joe's the founder of Earth Regenerators and co-founder of the new design school for regenerating earth. One of the things that's most important to me about what Joe and many other people are shedding some light on is this concept of planetary boundaries, that there are boundaries we've already crossed, that no changes we make now, changes to our fossil fuel use, for example, are going to be able to reverse. It's the understanding that we're in ecological overshoot, and climate change is only one sign of this overshoot. As sobering as this is, emotionally devastating even when you first really take a look at it, it can also be profoundly clarifying as to what matters, what to do. So this is why I asked Joe early in this conversation, what are you actively hopeful for at this point? What do you believe is possible? What hope for the future are you dedicating your life to? I will link in the show notes to Joe's YouTube channel, where you can find videos of some of the learning journeys he led in the Earth Regenerators community, exploring this topic of planetary boundaries and overshoot in depth. 
All the links I'm going to mention can be found at turningseason.com slash episode 33. In our conversation, you'll hear Joe describe some of the work going on in Barichara, Colombia, which is a living laboratory for the processes of earth regeneration, involving many different people and different projects in the region. And the landscape in Barichara is also one of the landscapes in the project called 1,000 Landscapes for 1 Billion People, which is a growing network of bioregions around the world, working toward the vision of restoring 1,000 local landscapes, which together would be able to change the trajectory of the biosphere, the climate system of the Earth. So this is a huge ambitious, beautiful project that's well underway, and you might really like to check out both what's going on in Barichara and the 1000 Landscapes project. I also want to mention the term pro-social, which is, as opposed to anti-social, types of behavior and ways of organizing groups that make community work, that make it work to share resources and information, coordinate together, have trust, pursue goals together. In his thorough exploration of this question, what would it take to have sustainable human societies in the future, Joe very actively includes this piece about cultivating collaborations between people that work over the long term. And this also includes how people manage commons together, resources that are shared in common, such as water. These topics are worthy of an entire conversation episode, including how this relates to social justice, decolonization, and collective liberation. So I will leave it at that for the moment and share a link to pro-social world with you in the show notes, which are again at turningseason.com slash episode 33. And finally, the newly founded Design School for Regenerating Earth. The design pathway for regenerating earth that Joe described in his book is to organize ourselves around holistic, integrated landscapes known as bioregions and connect those bioregions into a planetary network of learning exchanges. Members of this new design school are working together on the ground in local bioregions while building a planetary network of people engaging in this kind of work. So if you're curious to learn more and maybe even join the design school, that link is with the others at turningseason.com slash episode 33. Okay, my friends, my companions and comrades in the great turning, enjoy this conversation with Joe Brewer. Welcome, Joe. I've been looking forward to having a conversation with you for a long time. Thank you so much for being here. Mm, thank you so much for having me. I'd love to start by inviting you to finish these open sentences from the work that reconnects. So the first one, you can finish however comes to you. Some things I love about being alive on earth are? Mm, some things I love about being alive on earth are that I can feel the living energies of the atmosphere and oceans connected through land as water moves throughout all the living systems of the earth and that I can feel children growing through their innocence into the beauty of what it means to have awe and reverence for this life by interacting with children. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Such a good question. Yeah. It gets to the heart of something right away, right? 
Yeah. So on the other outstretched palm or the next phase of the spiral in the work that reconnects, we move into our pain for the world. And I would invite you to finish this sentence. When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is. When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is how few human beings are able to cultivate the sovereignty in themselves to act for what they themselves consider to be sacred. It's like bearing witness to the death of the world enacted by people through the callousness of their own non-engagement. Mm. That's powerful. That's a powerful way of framing that. I'm really caught by that. Uh, you know, there there are many people who might comment on the us not each having our sovereignty, right? That can mean so many things, but to think about that in terms of then we don't act on what we consider sacred. Yeah. I've seen it so many times where people don't realize they have the power to act in service to what they love. It's mm -hmm. just, it breaks my heart every time. Thank you. So there is so very much I want to get into with you, Joe. Um, we have this phrase from Joanna Macy, active hope, which contains the idea that there is hope. What we want could be possible. And it's also active. We don't sit around hoping it works out. And we make the hope more real. We make it more possible by acting toward it. So I see you as someone who's absolutely living into active hope with your hands on the ground in community in a very tangible way. And also someone who's taking an amazingly broad and complex view of what's happening and really what we can at this point hope for. So to start, I'd like to ask you to share an introduction to why you say there is such thing as a design pathway for regenerating Earth. Well, I want to start by saying that um, the idea of a design pathway is to intentionally apply the knowledge and skills we have to solve a problem or to address a concern or to, in some way, um, address needs to make the world a better place. So it's a very general thing. And um, so I think of there being a design pathway for regenerating Earth. What I mean is that the knowledge already exists, the tools are available for human beings to organize themselves into a kind of harmonious restoration or harmonious repairing or recuperation of um, degraded landscapes and living systems. So when I think of um, living into the design pathway for regenerating Earth, the word living into becomes really important. So we don't simply walk the pathway but that we live it into being. It comes into being by those who are living it out. And so this is similar to the way that, you know, Hamlet in a Shakespeare play doesn't exist except as words on a piece of paper until an actor lives out the part by enacting or performing the play. And so there's a way in which the design pathway for regenerating the earth, humans need to live out their part to become living expressions of the path as it emerges. And that this for me means that we need to realize where we are in planetary history. We need to have some basic understandings of how we came to arrive here, how the world came to be the way that it is, and what is possible and also what is no longer possible 
to be able to accomplish within the limits of physics, chemistry, biology, and sociology for how living systems actually work. And so um, maybe I'll start in that general way for you to nudge me in a particular direction because there are so many directions we can go. There are so many directions. And I know you have, we have a lot of um, YouTube videos of learning journeys and, and other talks you've given that I can point people towards. So I won't worry too much if we don't get to it all, but I'll do my best. And I, I'd like to have a shared understanding with you for listeners about what you perceive as possible right now. So in that context of active hope, what are you actively hoping toward? So I guess that's an invitation to explain more about what you mean uh, by what's possible and what's no longer possible right now. Yeah. Let me start with a concept that most people have never been taught because it's generally not taught in schools, which is the concept of ecological overshoot, which is a concept related to another idea called carrying capacity. And I, I don't want to be really like deeply technical. I want to just give the sense of it. Ecological overshoot is when in any ecosystem, a population of some species, so it could be a population of ants, a population of rabbits, a population of invasive bushes, whatever it may be, that they move beyond the capacity that that ecosystem can regenerate itself. The carrying capacity is the capacity uh, for that ecosystem or that entire environment to be able to regenerate itself as some of its resources or its capacities are being depleted. So ecological overshoot is when we go beyond the natural regenerative capacities of an ecosystem. And so humans right now are in ecological overshoot at a planetary scale, which means that since at least the 1970s and possibly longer, for at least half a century or 50 years, humans have been in ecological overshoot, which means that we deplete or degrade resources and capacities of the entire planet at a scale and speed faster and larger than the earth can regenerate itself. So we cut down more forests than forests can regenerate. We deplete more soils than soils can regenerate and so on and so forth, which means that there are physical constraints on what is needed to restore ecological health and what is possible to do while we're attempting to restore it. And this relates to what I can be hopeful for and what I can't be hopeful for because anything that continues to take us into ecological overshoot or that keeps us from getting back out of it is just not physically possible. It violates the laws of ecology, biology, and physics. And so um, when I think of what I'm actively hopeful for, I'm not actively hopeful for 8 billion humans living in unsustainable lifestyles in a globalized economy based on extraction and destruction of ecosystems that we somehow magically can address by, um, by just having think, you know, ideas that have no basis in ecological reality. Um, unfortunately, in ecological overshoot, one of the ways that it gets addressed is by having often a rapid um, collapse in the size of the population, which I think is very likely to occur, that the human population is likely to decline rapidly in the next few decades. And so what I'm actively hopeful for is that as the human population plummets, that it does not get to zero. Or said another way, that there's a real possibility that humans could go extinct as we deplete and destroy the biosphere of the earth, and that 
um, I'm actively hopeful that humans can survive the collapse that is of our own making. And that as humanity sustains and emerges on the other side, that we are organized as economies of living systems or regenerative economies that are able to operate in healthy ways at local landscape, continental and planetary scales. So that's like the way I would begin to say that I'm, I have active hope or I act in service to trying to increase the possibility of human survival during this planetary collapse that is already underway. And that as we get back within the carrying capacity of the planet, that we have reorganized ourselves as locally harmonious cultures in the way that indigenous cultures are locally harmonious, while at the same time preserving planetary knowledge and planetary consciousness so that we can both be local and planetary at the same time. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. I really appreciate this version of uh, what we can actively hope for at this point. And for me personally, once I moved through a lot of my initial grief and fear around this understanding of what's happening for us, I just my initial grief and fear, it's not like it never happens again. But I I find a certain grounding in this vision that feels really heartening and really clarifying about what is useful to work on at this time. I still feel confused about that at times, like what is really going to serve this vision of life-sustaining cultures that can emerge after and in an adaptation to whatever the ecosystem looks like down the line. But I think starting from what you've just shared, it, it helps me orient to, for example, whether to put effort and energy into the push for green electricity in my city, you know, or yeah. to, you know, pay more attention to if I can protect some wetlands, is that more in service to, as we would talk about in deep ecology, um, the future humans, you know, really listening for what the future humans are going to want and need? Yeah, it's really helpful to experience and understand what regenerative capacity means. It's like a wetland, for example. A wetland will hold regenerative capacities for recharging aquifers, for recharging groundwater supplies. It's regenerative in the sense that it provides habitat for different kinds of fish and birds and, and reptiles you know, and things like that. It has uh, provides habitat for biodiversity. And it might um, provide fire damage risk, like it might manage fire risk, or it might help mediate the, the local water cycle to maintain the regional climate system and maintain precipitation patterns. And so starting to think about this idea that there are different ways, different systems of management for landscapes that have different regenerative capacities. So if that same wetland was covered with concrete and turned into a city, which is what happened in Bogota here in Colombia, there are these high plains in the mountains in the Northern Andes, and they've covered so much of the, the wetland area with uh, a concrete jungle for 14 million people that that has fundamentally changed and reduced those regenerative capacities. And so this is an interesting thing because if someone asks me, well, what is the human population that is sustainable? Well, the answer is it depends on our model of social organization 
the kinds of technology we use, and the regenerative capacities of our landscapes, which all of those are deeply connected with each other. So if we can organize ourselves socially and in a technological sense, in a way that increases our regenerative capacities, then that helps us understand whether green electricity is a good idea or not, or what does green electricity actually mean? Is it micro hydropower in moving water in a sort of dike system of a well-managed wetland, or is it something else? And then we can start to assess what are the regenerative capacities in those different management frameworks. And it gives us a practical way of studying our landscapes as well as designing for the kinds of interventions that we feel are the best for wherever we are. So I find that really helpful that it's, it's philosophically clarifying, but it's also in a very practical sense, gives us clear guidance about what to do. Yeah, I'd like to walk a little further down that pathway if we can in, in holding this guiding question of, does this increase our regenerative capacity? For those of us, and I'm pretty sure that's the majority of folks who are listening to this conversation who are in urban or suburban environments, what kinds of helpful things can we participate in in this kind of setting? I, I do want to hear a lot more about what you're doing in Barichara, so we'll have room for what can be done um, where you have the capacity to do a project like that. But for those of us who are on these smaller lots or even in an apartment, what do you think could be helpful from here? Well, one thing to start is that urban environments are outcomes of a machine metaphor for the universe that leads to a fragmentation, modularity, and partitioning of the world. So like you're in a little apartment unit within an apartment building on a city block that's part of a grid of city blocks. It's just reductionistic parts. And so one of the things is that it's really impossible to have ecological patterns of behavior that are in those reductionistic mindsets. Not necessarily the structures, because the structures can be augmented, but that we really need to think in terms of holism, interdependence, and connectivity. So as an example, if you live in an apartment building, you could think of your, your unit, your apartment, how does it connect with the rest of the building? Well, how does the building connect into the surrounding landscape? and start looking for those larger ecological connections, and then get involved in and support any kinds of processes or projects that increase that ecological connectivity. And so you might do rainwater harvesting on the roof of the building, for example, and then have a vacant lot next to the building that is set up as a, as a public park and a community garden using some of the rainwater that's been harvested by the building. And you can start to look for those kinds of ecological connections. But then what you'll quickly realize is that it's actually fractal. And even if you did it from say the scale of your apartment to the building or the building to the city block, you'd start to realize that there are pathologies of structure and separation at larger scales. And that what you really need is to learn about and think about the world through integrated and holistic landscapes. So like is your city at the mouth of a river and what is the drainage basin? of the entire watershed of that river. Is your um, city connected to a tectonic plate that creates the kind of landform like the mountain range or the coastal estuary where you are? And how does that tectonic plate shape the kind of ecological connectivity that is possible or that is not possible for regenerative processes to occur around your urban environment? And so what I would encourage anyone who lives in a city 
to do is to move back to the larger landscape scale and start trying to learn about the holistic natural connections that were present before the city arrived. And then ask which of them can be reconnected while the city is still there, knowing that that city is fundamentally unsustainable and may ultimately go away. Meaning we don't know if cities can actually be sustainable or not. And so um, we don't wanna to try to preserve an unsustainable model. Instead, we wanna to try to understand what might be sustainable based on the connectivity of the landscapes and the cities we're in, which might actually be preparing for after the population crash and the city is emptied out, or it might lead to a more regenerative and more sustainable city. And the reason that I say that um, we should think this way is that it doesn't matter which of those outcomes it is. It's still the right way to go. Trying to make a city more sustainable or trying to create the connectivity patterns of the landscape for after the unsustainable city has died will both be the same pathway. So regardless of which view a person has, trying to make a city more sustainable because they think that there will be cities in the future, or that they think cities probably won't exist, but I need to do what I can in this landscape, that they would be looking for the same ecological connectivity. And so that means that we can have differing worldviews about the role of cities and still align pragmatically around the same course of action which is to look for those connectivities of the larger landscape. And this is something that people in cities, generally speaking, they don't even know that they're not doing. So just to name it, what is your landscape? Where does your water come from? How does the shape of your land relate to the kinds of habitats and ecosystems that were here before the city came? Where are the pockets of that native ecology? And how could you learn about it and become related to it? All of these things are about connectivity and larger landscapes. So that's what I would encourage anyone in cities to do is to become familiar with and to start to think with the larger connectivity of holistic landscapes. That's great. That's very, very helpful. Thank you. I had a, a thought along these lines when I first started learning about water issues and the whole idea of depaving and the small water cycle and you know potentially reducing fire danger in California and bringing back rain and i had that thought that okay this is something i can offer the energy of the days of my life to and i feel like it's going to be good no matter what the future is you know that whether we're whether in my lifetime or soon after there's this dramatic collapse or not. And I have a nice example of this. In the beginning of February this year, we were doing a bioregional activation tour. Basically, we were going to different landscapes in the eastern part of the Great Lakes in North America and helping people to learn how to connect to their landscapes. And one of the very inspiring projects we learned about was in the city of Toronto. Toronto is the largest city in Canada, has 8 million people, it's the major technology and financial hub. Uh, so it's in a way like Canada's New York or Canada's San Francisco. Um, so it's a very dynamic and very unsustainable city. And in the landscape of Southern Ontario, where Toronto is located, which is on the North shore of Lake Ontario, there are five entire watersheds that drain across the urban landscape. So from North to South, five parallel rivers. And one of those rivers is called the Don River, D-O-N. And the Don River was completely covered in concrete and the mouth of the river 
was turned into an industrial waste site. And in the language of US uh, policies, we'd call it a, a super fund site, whereas in Canada, they'd have a different name. But basically it was just over the span of 150 years became filled with toxic industrial sludge and garbage. And there was a project that now has $2 billion Canadian dollars in funding to restore the natural riparian pathway of the entire Don River. So they have been tearing up the concrete and designing a natural river flow system that moves all the way across the urban landscape of Toronto to bring the Don River back to life. It's at a massive scale. It's in the middle of the urban core of the city. It's sort of astonishing to see. And so it'd be worth the time of anyone who's saying, well, if I live in a city, how could I think at the level of connecting to the entire landscape? So just go online and look up the Don River in Toronto and imagine the 20 years of work that they're now doing with giant land moving equipment to reshape and recarve the natural river that was completely paved over and destroyed. And so it's an example of this way of thinking that the city of Toronto is not more sustainable overall because it's still part of the globalized economy, massive financial center and all of that. But if the population of Toronto collapses, the water will flow across the Don River with permeable surfaces and riparian pathways that were re-engineered back into the landscape. And so it's this way of thinking that's so important, even if we're not able to do the scale of project in our own cities. So I just wanted to give an example of this to say that not only is this way of thinking possible, it is actually happening in some places. And one of them is Toronto and Ontario. That's very exciting. I'm going to look that up and and add some links to the show notes. I want to read more about that. I can envision something like that where I am too. At least envision it. It might be might be 20 years of work to even get it started, but that's that's beautiful. So, let's talk about what you can do as far as bioregion scale regeneration. So, can you share what you're doing in Barichara and maybe this collaboration with Common Land and eco-agriculture partners making a more planetary scale. Yeah, so let me start by saying that there's a project that is hosted by eco-agriculture partners with several other uh, partners, one of them being Common Land Foundation, and it's called 1000 Landscapes. I think it's called 1000 Landscapes for a Billion People, but, um, but if you look up 1000 Landscapes, you'll find it. And what they found was in a study they had done looking at degraded landscapes around the world, they identified a pattern where if they were able to restore 1,000 landscapes, each of which is 100,000 hectares or larger in size, that they could change the trajectory of the entire biosphere and uh, of the climate system of the earth. And so that's based on a fairly limited amount of research. So we can't say for certain that these 1,000 landscapes will do the job, but it's the first time that someone has made such a, uh, a research project. And so it's a very inspiring thing to learn more about and refine and improve. And one of the things that we're doing here in the Northern Andes of Colombia, in South America, in Barichara, Colombia, is we are organizing a tapestry of local projects, many of which already existed before I arrived, although there are some new ones that have come into being. I've been here for about three and a half years, and we're in a landscape where um, there's a regional climate system that is defined by the shape of the mountain range in the Northern Andes, together with a network of several deep canyons for river systems through this part of the Northern Andes. 
and together this combination of canyons and mountain peaks creates a unique ecosystem unlike any other on earth called the High Andes Tropical Dry Forest, where about 80% of the species are endemic, they exist nowhere else on earth, and about 95% of this local forest type has been deforested for agriculture. So it's a nearly extinct type of ecosystem. And there's a climate system here defined by the mountain range at the scale of about 500,000 hectares or about a million acres. And so what we're doing is working from that scale, a well-defined boundary of high range uh, mountain peaks together with an internal climatic system of um, regional climate system within the mountains themselves, together with the river systems and the valleys and the plateaus that define a unique ecosystem, the high Andes tropical dry forest. And the kind of work that we're doing is helping create frameworks of cooperation to create what we call biocultural corridors, which is that there are already biological corridors like uh, a watershed or a migration pathway for animals um, or soil types for different kinds of ecosystems that create a connectivity across the landscape. And we're combining that natural connectivity of landscapes to the organizing of human systems. So one example is there's a project here called Pasos de Agua, which translates from Spanish as the steps of water, the path that water takes while it's stepping. And the project is for small children to walk the dry riverbeds of dead rivers and to talk to the adults who live on the land of those uh, dry watersheds and to ask the adults what happened to the water as a way of cultivating conscience and connection, and then to begin an educational process of exploring how to restore the health of streams and rivers across the landscape. And so this is an example of a human activity, educational activities with children and walking the landscape and creating intergenerational connections between adults and children, which combines with reforestation, watershed restoration, and also the remembering of stories of the past, ecological and cultural stories of history related to the landscape overall. And what we're doing here in Barichara is trying to create a living laboratory and a prototype of a regenerative economy at the scale of this 500,000 hectare integrated landscape. And so there are a lot of specific projects and lots of things we could say about the details, but what I would say is so far it's working really well a lot of projects that were like islands of separation from each other are now actively collaborating because we've created frameworks of cooperation and people have gotten to know each other. And we've pulled resources from the outside and brought them into the local community while creating local collaboration and governance frameworks for how to make decisions and set priorities together for the allocation of resources and for strategic planning purposes. And then it's all working really well. And so we are one of those thousand landscapes. So the idea is that we need to have a living experiment and real world knowledge of how to do this and then collaborate with other landscapes where we can share with each other our common struggles and challenges, our insights and learnings to accelerate the process within and between landscapes. And that we're building a planetary network of these landscapes to help get to that 1,000 landscapes of eco-agriculture partners doing our part here in Colombia. And right now we're actively creating a framework of landscapes and bioregions spread across North America. So it's, it's working on multiple scales simultaneously. And the work here in Colombia is 
sort of like the proof in the pudding that the way we can say we know what we're talking about, that it's actually working, that people can come here and see it and learn about it and participate in it, and that we can go and help bring what we're learning to other landscapes and bring what they're learning to our landscape and to yet other landscapes still. So um, I know that that's a lot to try and hold in your mind, but it's not as hard as we might imagine because if you look at a, a visualization of a continent that's organized around its watersheds, you'll see that continents like North America and South America and Africa, all continents, are naturally self-organized around watersheds, which means we can connect one watershed to another across the Amazon basin, up and down the Colorado River, throughout the Great Lakes, throughout the Salish Sea and Cascadia in the Pacific Northwest, and so on throughout the world. And the idea is we use those natural organizing patterns of landscapes and continents to be able to create this planetary network. And so that's, in, in brief, that is what we're doing here in Colombia, as well as what we're helping to do to create a planetary scale impact over time. It's amazing. It's so incredible. All the details that I know, have a glimpse anyway, are, are going on there to make something like that work on a day-to-day -day basis with human relationships and working in the ground, on the ground and everything. And this vision of interconnected landscapes around the world, I think that's part of the story that you've been kind of telling about this next phase for humanity where there's a quality of indigeneity and in belonging to place and also this interconnection, this global interconnection that comes from our modern time. I, I'm wondering if we can get a few examples or like real stories that we can imagine about something that you're doing on the ground. I love the story about the children walking the dry riverbed, um, something that's happening as far as soil or growing food. And if you have any story about the human relationship piece, because you mentioned that a little bit, how to create structures for decision-making together, just to give us something to, to really picture about how this looks. Yeah, I'd love to give um, a story in two parts. Okay, There's great. a project here in Barichar. It's called La Huerta Comunitaria Mi Sol which just means the community garden, and the name of it is my sun. And I mean, the sun is in the sky, the sun in the sky. And um, this huerta, this community garden, was created during the pandemic in 2020. We're in a local tourism economy, and when the pandemic came, there was a lockdown, tourism shut down, and a lot of local people didn't have money, so they couldn't buy food. And there was a private landowning family that offered their land, their farm, or creating a community garden. And 16 families came together and started growing food in this community land. It was privately owned, they used it as community land. And they called it La Huerta Comunitaria, or the community garden. And now flash forward to 2022, in April of 2022, two years later, and this community garden was not really doing very well. They didn't know very many gardening or permaculture techniques. They were not building soils. They didn't even know to use cover crops. Um, there was, it was sort of like a pathetic garden in a way they were doing, you know, they were not doing a very good job. And so the engagement was starting to dwindle, but people were coming together around community activities like shared meals and workshops. And so there was still a vibrance to the community, but not much vibrance to the garden. 
And, you know, there was a lot in the beginning, but then it sort of dwindled. And what happened in April of 2022 is that several of us who had been organizing around territorial governance, because we're creating a territorial foundation for our territory, which is a, a multi-year process, and we've already been underway for two and a half years. It's not legally constituted, but it has a lot of community form and a lot of activities have already occurred. And so several of us came together to organize a workshop in Centropic Agriculture. Centropic Agriculture being a very powerful reforestation method that can grow food, that can create construction materials, that can create medicinal plants and plants are making textiles and natural fibers all together in the same system. And so we, we brought in a teacher of Centropic Agroforestry. And then we offered a three-day workshop where the first day was in the class or the classrooms, sort of like the knowledge and theory. And the second and third day was to establish a real world community garden in Centropic Agroforestry. This was so successful at gathering families. There were about 30 people who attended the workshop and maybe 15 of them had their own private land. So they started practicing Centropic principles on their land. And we had a community demonstration site in a community reforestation project called Bioparque Moncora. And so there was a lot of activity around people coming to learn more techniques in the community space, as well as doing field site visits and learning more on each other's private land. And the dynamic of those relationships was so powerful and so cooperative that we organized a second Centropic Agriculture workshop a few months later, it took place in August of last year, and they did it in La Huerta Comunitaria. So they went into the community garden and there was a three-day workshop again, and they established a centropic agriculture system designed around continual food production. And all of the families that were part of that community garden, those 16 families, became deeply engaged in practicing centropic agroforestry while they were still sharing their knowledge of medicinal plants and how to grow food and different local textiles from native plants. They started learning how to grow food while building a food forest system. And so in this example, what I want you to notice that's social in its organization is the use of a workshop to bring together people and establish a food forest system. That in the span of three days, 25 to 30 people came together and planted 7,000 native plants or 7,000 plants, mostly native, they weren't entirely native, and about 30 to 40 different species that were planted into these plots. And then they learn really deep technical knowledge about those plants and the maintenance of a centropic agroforestry system. And now we have two public or community demonstration sites, the one in Bioparque Moncora and the one in La Huerta Misol. And then there's this pattern of collaboration around field site visits across a lot of private land in the territory. There's a lot of knowledge sharing about plants and gardening techniques and pruning techniques and so on that are increasingly being shared across the community. Now, I wanted to give this example to show how three-day workshops to establish a community forest on community land, together with the dynamic interactions of people on private land practicing, and then having the teacher of the workshop and all of the students who want to, to travel from one piece of land to another, that they all become really good friends. They all get to know about each other's projects, they all have a slightly different focus and a slightly different context for the project happening on their land. And an incredible amount of learning has occurred in the last year. It's April now, it's only been a year. And we now have about 25 centropic agroforestry sites 
two of them that are community demonstration sites and this massive web of relationships, learning how to do restoration, um, reforestation, and create regional food security while building a tapestry of trust and friendship among people. And so that's an example of a, a story in two parts, the story of the Huerta that was formed during the pandemic, which was really good for social connectivity, but not very good for ecological restoration or food security. And then the second phase, because they were already organized as a community to bring this new powerful perspective of centropic agroforestry and transform their capacity for restoration and food security. And all of this has happened in the last three years. And it's just been a truly inspiring thing to behold. It's very inspiring. It's very inspiring to hear it and to think only three years. That's a fantastic story. Thank you. I'm sure there's many, many more. I know that you are conceiving of and considering all these layers to a sustainable culture and culture design, including finance and governance and all of these things. And those are worthy of of deeper consideration. I'm I'm wanting to ask for the sake of this conversation and listeners and also thinking about, you know, back to that question of where we are in the context of our own lives embedded in our own tapestries, what can we be doing? And I wanted to ask you to reflect on pro-social connection and belonging and maybe some principles of that or just any reflections that we might even be able to take forward into our lives and how we're relating to each other. And when we do have situations of shared decision-making, what you've learned about what's most useful there. I'd say one of the things that's been really, really useful for me is to understand, first of all, that there's a lot of really well-organized and well-researched knowledge about how to create effective cooperation. And so this, um, this idea of creating pro-social groups, groups that are generous and altruistic and compassionate and trusting and able to collaborate really well, there are diagnostics and practices to help us do that. So it's just to say the knowledge exists. And then the other thing that's um, maybe the blind side of that knowledge is that just because the knowledge exists does not mean that the people practicing have the capacities or the experience to know how to do it. There's a lot of trauma. Um, there are bad actors. There are people who intentionally lie, cheat, manipulate, and game things for their own benefit, including in pro-social contexts. And so there's really a need for clear structures around what is the identity of a group? Who are we if I'm in a group? Who are we that come together? What is our purpose? What are we here for? What are, what are we doing together? How do we make decisions together in a fair and inclusive way? Um, how do we have graduated sanctions for behavior where we can say um, people who do things that are unhelpful have consequences to remind them they need to be more helpful, but we might actually need to kick someone out of the group. How do we do that um, so that the group can continue to function? There are things having to do with managing conflict and about just sense-making together, the ability to make sense of the context and understand things. I've been in some situations where there are people who um, who either are basically saying false things because they've distorted it in their own minds, and so their own emotional biases have caused them to distort the story that they tell, and other people who actually have malicious intent and intentionally deceive, 
And when there's just this good trust belief that everyone is being honest and everyone knows what's true, that um, it's actually really hard to function well as a group because discernment is low and sense-making is low. And so it's just to say that even when we know a lot, or you can go and read and study a lot about how to cooperate well, that it's really important to practice. And as we practice to discover our own deficiencies and the deficiencies in the people in our groups, and then to build toward the um, clarity of purpose and identity, the clarity about processes and protocols, the ways of managing specific decisions related to the purpose and the structure of a group. And, um, and to be very, very careful not to do this in the abstract, to not try to create a universal governing system, a generic way of managing conflict, but instead to have the human capacities to create conflict resolution frameworks appropriate to the context, or to create a framework for making decisions appropriate to the context, so that the adaptability of the group is able to evolve as the group deals with different situations. And so I've seen a lot of um, missteps where people think that they need clear structure, like we have a protocol for that, but then the protocol never evolves or updates and they apply it universally to all situations. It's basically to say there are no recipes for cooperative groups, but there are capacities for cooperative groups. And those capacities need to be agile, flexible, um, updatable, meaning they need to be able to learn and change. And that most of the problems I've seen in dysfunctional groups have been a combination of either people don't have the knowledge of how to create an effective group, or they don't have the capacities to be an effective group, even if they have abstracted theoretical knowledge about it. And I've actually found that second type to be more dangerous or more pernicious because people can have false knowledge. They can say, oh, we've talked about conflict resolution, so we know how to do it. We've talked about purpose, so we know how to do it. But it's actually the psychological and the social capacities to live it and to continually evolve it that matter even more than the knowledge itself. Because the knowledge in the absence of the real world context can be profoundly misleading and create false confidence or just blind spots about what people need to do to manage themselves effectively. So I would say that the biggest lesson I've learned overall from this is that um, we have to embody this in practice. And then we have to practice embodying it. And that this is something that most of our education and most of our everyday jobs and everyday lives have not taught us how to do. And so most people don't really know how to do it. They don't know how to learn by practicing and embodying being an effective group. And so um, that embodiment part seems to be left out of too many conversations. So I really want to put it here in this one. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm hearing this perfectly in parallel with the idea of having abstract knowledge about gardening, for example. And then <laughs> what is it like when you actually start trying to grow something and, and understand the slopes and the soil quality of your unique spot that you're working with? It's the same with every unique group of humans and depending on what their shared identity is and what the purpose is of the group. So as I'm listening, I'm thinking this is a, a skill, both a skill set and an area of knowledge that is worth working on no matter what kind of setting we're in. So again, back to wherever you're living right now and 
whatever your lifestyle allows as far as changes toward a more regenerative human society. To think about how to function well in groups seems like something we could all be considering and and helping nurture in our children. So I'll I'll share some of those resources that I know you like, Joe, for abstract, at least ideas of how this can work so that people can can dive into that practice if they want to. And um, before we close, I want to touch on um, working with our children. I know you're a father, Joe, and I have two kids. They're a little bit older than your daughter, and I have some listeners who are young people. So I'm wondering how you talk about what you actively hope for with younger people, if you're having conversations about this with children, and if there are, if there's anything you would like to say to younger people who are listening or to those of us who are parents who are finding our way through, how to talk to kids about what's going on. Well, first thing is, um, my daughter is six years old for the listeners. So my daughter is young enough to be pretty small and still innocent and joyful and, and old enough to be kind of complex and sophisticated. <laughs> you can see the future teenager there in her six-year-old form. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so when I think about what I would have said to my daughter when she was three and what I'll say to her now when she's six and what I would say to her when she's 40 at these different ages, maybe I'll start with what I would say to her when she's 40 is I would say, um, my daughter's name is Elise. So I'll say, Elise, um, you can see as an adult when you look back on how I raised you and what I was doing, that I was doing everything I could, that I was not delusional about the state of the world at all. And I took it very seriously. And I don't want to be ashamed and I don't want to regret anything that I say to my daughter when she's 40 years old. So for me now, I have to live that for the next 34 years. Hey, you know, we both live that long. And so, um, so that's one thing is that I need to live with enough integrity that I can look my daughter in the eye when she's an adult and tell her that I did my best. So anyone who's a parent, if you can't look your child in the eye and tell them you did your best, you've got some long, dark nights of the soul that you need to do some soul searching in, and then you need to make some changes. Um, for people who are considering having children, or people with young children, I would say that contrary to the grief and the debilitating um, despair of our ecological crisis, which tells you, I shouldn't have children. Why would I bring them into a world that's so dangerous? I would contrast that and say, my experience is the opposite. I feel more authentic, more empowered, more transformational, more healthy, and more joyful because I'm doing everything I can for my six-year-old daughter. And a lot of it, I'm doing with my six-year-old daughter. And six-year-olds are so fun. And so I just wanted to name this that Children are such a profound source of human emotional regeneration. They heal us as adults. Adults and children were never supposed to be separate. This idea that children go to daycare and adults go to work is a pathology. Children are so amazing. They're so wonderful. Adults who aren't around children are missing a big part of the human story and they don't even know it. So for people who have young children, enjoy them. Spend your time with them and then do things in service to their future. Those of you who are thinking about having children, don't let despair get the best of you. If you feel like you need to be a parent because you're just, you've always known you were a mother, you've always known you were a father, 
then you need to do that or you will not be complete and you'll regret your life on your deathbed. And also, those children are a continual source of devotion, motivation, and inspiration as you struggle to be regenerative for the rest of your life. And so children are pro profound catalysts for transforming the adults. And we don't realize that until we spend time around them. And so I would say children are like the secret to this. If we understand the role of children in being regenerative, then we understand that humans are always intergenerational. And that we as adults, we can't even make sense of our lives. We have these shallow purposes, like I want a more expensive car, which is this shallow, pointless manipulation of someone's emotions and identity by marketing companies. That it actually brings no deep purpose or meaning. But to be a good father, to be a good mother, to experience joy and meaning and purpose with your own children, there's nothing more valuable. It's just incredible. And if you're not a parent, you can still be a mentor and a guide and a teacher and a role model, all kinds of things for these young people. And so you don't have to have children to have the benefit of what children bring to humanity. So, so maybe that's what I would say. I just think it's, it's so important that we couldn't overstate it, is what I would say. Thank you so much for that perspective. I'm feeling it myself, and I'm, I know there are people listening who are just I feel a lot of relief in hearing you say that, actually, coming from someone who's quite aware of our predicament, this sort of there's no way out of what we've set ourselves towards. And there's a lot of um, awful experiences to come um, for people who are embodied as humans in these coming years. Someone who's awake to all of that to, to express this is just really wonderful. Um, I will say that my experience also has been like yours, that the amount that I care is profoundly shaped by my children, by my identity as a mother and my sense of joy and purpose and connection. I can't even, I don't even know what it would be at this point in my life, what it would be like. I'm sure it would be there, but I don't, I can't imagine yeah. what it would be without who I am in relationship to my children. My and daughter think, has motivated me to make more changes in my life than anything I could do for myself. And my life is so much better for it. It's such a big deal. And and for, like you said, for all the people who either don't want to or can't be biological parents, all the aunties and uncles of my children and the the sort of surrogate grandparents, I mean, I see the same kind of light come on for them in just being near and experiencing the grace of loving a child. So... There's something in that, I think, too, for the young people listening to remember that we cherish your lives. <laughs> we cherish your presence here with us, and we want you to love your lives and and to experience the beauty of this wonderful world, this amazing mm -hmm. earth, no matter Absolutely. how long we get. Yeah, and we're also here to help these young people. Young people, if you're listening, kids, teenagers, young adults, we are here to help you. We know what it was like for us when we were your age, and we're here to help. That's what I wanted to hear as a young adult. There's some adults who get it out there who are like, yes, we're here to help. We got you. Well, thank you so, so much, Joe. This, this has been wonderful. I appreciate your perspectives and your work so much. Is there any final things on your mind and heart that you'd like to share before we close? Yeah, I would just share that... Um... 
in a time like this where all of our actions have very strong consequences, it's so important to discern two things. One is, what is in your heart to do in service to the earth? Really explore and figure that out and then go do it. And the other is, be ready for a lot of people to be confused and to not understand and for there to be lots of problems and conflicts of people not understanding. Because what's happening is so complex and it's never happened before. So we should expect that confusion and we can forgive ourselves a little bit for it. So I just wanted to say, go easy on yourself if it's hard, because it's going to be hard. And don't regret what you didn't do. If there's a passion burning in your heart to do in service to the earth, these next few decades are it. This is our time right now. So don't delay, get to it. And maybe I'll see you out there in the forest or in the field somewhere, and we'll do a little bit of it together. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for everything and that final heartening call there. When people want to find you and connect with you, I know they can look in the forest around Barachara, but do you have anywhere you want folks to look online? They can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook, of course, or on Twitter, but I'd recommend coming to the Design School for Regenerating Earth and see if it might be a good fit, as it's a place where we're taking all of this work very seriously. And um, we've already gathered quite an amazing group of leaders from different parts of the world and come play with us out in the landscapes of the earth as we try to regenerate them. All right. See you there. Thank you again, Joe. Thank you for having me, Leilani. And thank you so much for listening. I so appreciate you being here. If you can think of anyone else who might get some good active hope from listening to this conversation with Joe Brewer, please share the link with them. You can share it right from the app where you're listening or send them the link to turningseason.com slash episode 33. That's also where you'll find all the links to connect with Joe and the Design School for Regenerating Earth and learn more about the topics we touched on here. I'll be back again on the next full moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.